Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at Symposium 2, a conference held in Los Angeles at Stephen Wise Temple in November of 2018. It's my great pleasure to welcome Dahlia Lithwick to the College Commons podcast. Dahlia Lithwick is a senior editor at Slate and has been writing their Supreme Court dispatches and jurisprudence columns since 1999. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New Republic, and Commentary. And she is the host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning bi-weekly podcast about the law and the Supreme Court. And I know that many of our listeners will have heard uh, Dahlia Lithwick in some capacity or another, so it is really an honor and a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we're going to start with the Jewish name game. You and I share something, which is last names that no one would think are Jewish if they didn't know us. Uh, my family is Turkish and changed its name, which in the Turkish Jewish world is, is known as a Jewish name, but it was Americanized from Halio to Holo. Yours sounds Anglo. My family came through uh, uh, the Canadian Maritimes. They uh-huh. didn't get in through Ellis Island, and so they came in through uh, Canada, and it was Litvak and became very properly Lithwick. Nice. Uh, and uh, what I didn't know until fairly recently is I just assumed all Litvaks meant we were all from Lithuania. But apparently it had more to do with your Rebbe than it did to do with geography. So I, I, I actually don't know Interesting. where they came from. My grandfather certainly came from Russia. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, that's, that's the story. And so whenever we meet somebody who's properly called Litvak, we're a little jealous because we sound like we were in the British movie version of whatever there is. <laughs> there are worse things to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wait, well, but that... I have to tell you one yeah, other yeah. thing. I'm half Spartic. Oh. My mother's half is Iraqi. Nice. And my grandfather, who was born and raised in Baghdad, <clears throat> and at some point had, very late in his life, had somebody do the work of where was he from. And they found out they may have come over to Baghdad, not in the original, in the original migration, but from Vienna. Yes. And my grandfather stopped speaking to the person who did that. <laughs> he was so mad to find out he might have been Ashkenazi at some point. So speaking of the American experience, you're Canadian? I am Canadian. And you were raised both or here? You came as an adult to America? I was raised in Ottawa, Canada, and I came to America when I started college. And then I never left after college. So college and law school in the States, married an American here on a green card. So I want to ask you about an experience that I have as an American, um, which is that American Jews love to celebrate the law. Is this part of your story? Is this uh, something you've seen? It's certainly part of my story. It's interesting. The first thing I thought when you asked that is there's a brand new, uh, really dense intellectual biography of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that's coming out. And the sections that really grip me are exactly what you're speaking to, which is the ways in which for her gravitating to the law was such a perfectly natural thing. And she talks about it and she says, you know, there were two things going on. One was that Jews were locked out of other professions and and the law accepted them. And so that Jews have always uh, uh, been drawn to the law. But then the deeper thing you're talking about, you know, this is a, a tradition that 
precedes America. That is, if you are people of the book, people of text, people of language and immutable words, then the constitutional law is kind of a second nature. It, it, it feels like it's bred in the bone. And I, my version of that for me is, you know, I grew up, I was a day school kid. I think about text constantly. Then I was an English major. All I think about is words on paper. And at some point I had uh, written an article about something and one of my editors at Slate said, oh, Dahlia, sometimes you talk about the Constitution like it's the Bible. And I think it was meant to be disparaging, but I thought that's really true, that there is something, if you are a people, and maybe this is your experience and maybe it isn't, where your parents come from one place, your grandparents came from a different place, your great-grandparents came from a different place, often leaving with the clothes on their back. Uh, what you had was words and text, and it becomes uh, a guardrail of reality in a time and place where there aren't other guardrails. And for me, I think I'm very aware much later in my life how much reliance on foundational text is a building block both of my Jewish identity, but also why it was just so seamless to become a person who lives in the constitutional legal space. Because I think, just as Justice Ginsburg keeps saying, you know, this is a tradition about words matter, texts matter, dissent matters, argument matters. You can dispute respectfully and still hold things to be fundamentally true. Those really millennia-old Jewish precepts I always thought those were universal, mm. but actually there's such a straight line between the Jewish experience and, and, and the way it feels so natural in an American constitutional system. And I think just my little coda to that is Justice Antonin Scalia talks that way about his Catholic background yeah. and talks about there's a reason there are five Catholics on the U.S. Supreme Court because this is very much a Catholic tradition as well. Mm -hmm. And that is not to say greater than, lesser than, but it's to say he really took that same ferocious pride in text and text study that Ginsburg took. I actually think it's one of the things that unites them. And they, they were known to be friends, is that right? Oh, and beyond friends. I mean, they were friends of the heart. And, and, and after he died... Uh, when I was doing, you know, the round of, of TV hits, that was the number one question everyone asked. Like, tell the truth. That was for show, right? They weren't really deep friends. How could they be? They were such ideological opponents. And it's true. It was true. They were, they traveled together. There's a famous picture of the two of them, you know, on the back of a camel traveling uh, in the East. They adored each other. And even when they bickered, they really thought each of them said of the other, this is one of the smartest people I know. And just bringing it back to text, again, later in analyzing that friendship, I came to realize what they loved about each other was that they corrected each other's work. They would send back marked up drafts mm. and each of them absolutely trusted that the other would make, even when they were disagreeing profoundly, mm. their work and their analysis better. And in some ways, I think what a beautiful, again, statement about Jewish and Catholic values about truth and text. Mm. And for me, I think that united them, that they could disagree and make each other's work better at the same time. That's very profound in this moment. 
Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. You gave a fascinating and passionate presentation to the Chautauqua Institution about religion and the Supreme Court in 2017. It's on YouTube. You spent time talking about both the problem and the reason for backgrounding the religion, uh, the religious affiliations of the justices themselves. And, and at the end, you propose a way to understand it. You, you argue for, of course, deep analysis, but also um, ideological self-awareness and empathy. And you also, at the same time, cited some of the naughtiest KNO uh, uh, cases in, in recent American jurisprudence, the Hobby Lobby case where they didn't want to um, provide, uh, uh, was it, was it pr- uh, contraception, contraception yeah. that they didn't under, want to Under the Obama mandate. Under yep. Obama mandate. Um, and you also cited on the other side of the same coin Scalia's uh, willingness to be in favor of the death penalty despite the fact that his Catholicism would militate against that. In light of your desire for empathy and religious self-awareness and an attempt to kind of get at these problems from a different angle, does it actually change the fact that sometimes it's a zero-sum game in an Enlightenment society which claims to separate church and state and thereby to protect church, or at least freedom of conscience, uh, that at times in these really difficult cases, it does just boil down to the neutral, non-religious agenda of the Enlightenment state coming at the expense of raw, self-defined religious prerogative? I mean, that is the question. I think it is... Especially as we look at, I mean, let's pause and think about the moment we're in. You know, as you and I are speaking, the acting attorney general is somebody who's on record audibly saying all judges should be Christian judges and that he would have doubts about any judge who wasn't a Christian. So subtext of this question is now text. We are overtly now saying we have, I mean, imagine even two years ago, an attorney general on the record saying, um, you know, we, mm. we should have no judge who isn't a Christian. He was expressly asked, New Testament or Le- Levitical? And the answer was New Testament. And that means, in his view, you are disqualified. And think back even two years ago when Jeff Sessions had his confirmation hearing. I thought the most controversial thing he said as somebody aspiring to be attorney general was that he couldn't bring him to self to say that atheists could be as good Mm-hmm. Uh, workers right. in the Justice Department as as non-atheists. So these are ideas that are, in a sense, they've been in the ether, but boy, they are on paper in front of us now. And I think we have to ground any conversation in that, that we are in an incredibly fraught constitutional moment where um, a Christian baker 
is allowed to deny service to a same-sex couple in Colorado because Anthony Kennedy, writing in the majority, doesn't like what he thinks is anti-religious sentiment directed at that baker by one commissioner on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So we're at a moment where it has become absolutely blessed, I say that word ironically, but also not, to say that one religion and one religion only has kind of a hegemonic control of constitutional truth and law and justice. And that is not even the moment we were in when I gave that Chautauqua speech. I mean, we've really changed in in a year and a bit. And so I think that, I mean, your, your underlying question is this question of it's always going to be either or. It's always going to be and I'm one or the other. And I'm challenging you on your attempt, your your admirable attempt that I wanted to sign on to in the Chautauqua talk, which was you, you were arguing that there's a third way, there's, there's a different approach to this problem. And I'm asking, is the problem not fundamentally irreducible uh, no matter how you tackle it? I, I think at the time I probably would have said my third way works. I think... Uh, now, when the stakes have gone up and it's become explicit, I'm, I'm, I'm more of your view. The thread I would pull through from that speech to this moment is that I can diagnose better than ever what doesn't work. And what doesn't work is not talking about it. Fair enough. And so what I was trying to say is the act of not discussing this in the public sphere is why it's, it's toxic and zero-sum. And I think that we are about to confirm someday, very soon, to the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, Amy Coney Barrett, who was the you know number two on the list that, that uh, Donald Trump was looking at after he picked uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And this is the woman who um, is a very, very uh, beloved uh, professor at Notre Dame. She's now been elevated to the Seventh Circuit. She has written expressly and explicitly in ways that nobody else has written about her religious faith and how it inflects on her jurisprudence. And Diane Feinstein at her confirmation hearing to the circuit court so bungled questioning her about this, tried really hard to say, you know, how can you possibly say what you've written? And bless her heart, Senator Feinstein at some point said, the dogma lives loudly within you. And everybody in that chamber just went, this is how we're, first of all, you sound like Yoda. And second of all, this isn't how we do this conversation. And so what I am still imploring folks to do is instead of pretending it away, instead of just accepting the sort of, you know, uh, uh, John Kennedy, like I'm religious at home, but we can't accept that duality. And so even though I agree with you completely, it has now become... You win, I lose. We have to foreground it in public discussion in a way that we're not doing at all. Agreed. We do We do have to talk about it. I have to say, as a religious person like you out, outed yourself, so to speak, in that talk, I feel that we have lost in the conversation, the civic conversation, we've lost the perspective that the defense of enlightenment a religious, non-religious, and even anti-religious ideals in the neutral civic sphere actually protects the freedom of conscience component of religion on the individual plane. That, to me, is a value proposition that doesn't split the horns of the dilemma, but it does at least provide um, 
that the zero sum game you lose religion loses in the public sphere but it can win in the private sphere that to me is important um, because religion needs to get a win out of this if it is a zero sum game and if we're to make any headway on behalf of the separation of church and state which i support maybe the way to think about it is that more and more i think we've lost sight of the principle that in a lot of ways the bill of rights is a perfectly transactional document Mm -hmm. it's not just my rights my rights my rights it's i imagine the most loathed individual in whatever class we're in having the same rights as i do for some purpose that you've just described and i think that what we've let slide away and particularly in this political moment is the notion that if I don't protect the rights of the Muslim business owner who wants to right. impose his work on third par- his uh, religious values on third parties, then I can't protect the rights of the the Green family, you know, right. in right. in the Hobby Lobby. It's the Skokie argument. Yeah, it's the Skokie Nazi Party argument. It, it 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 is foundational, and yet it is gone. Yeah, and I think it's gone in part because of exactly what you've described here, which is there is no longer a transactional view of the religious liberty clauses. There is a view that my, you know my religious liberty matters because I'm the majority, right? And because we all agree this is a Christian country, and uh, every everything else doesn't matter. And the notion that, and that's you know what I was trying to think through in that Chautauqua speech was here's Elena Kagan thinking about the Muslim woman in town right. of Greece who doesn't want to bow her head and pray to Jesus. And by the way, this imports perfectly into the conversation we're having about speech, right? Because speech is the same thing. Yes, and it goes to right. the Nazis. If I'm not fighting to protect the speech of Milo Yiannopoulos, of Richard Spencer, because as contemptible as it is, if their speech isn't protected, my speech as a Jew yeah. is not protected, we've completely let that slide out of the discourse, I think. And we've turned it into a... A sort of victim culture, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, whoever suffers greatest gets the most uh, reward. But also, I think we've completely lost the notion that this is not a majority rules proposition. And that's why it's that's why it's enshrined as a right which is guaranteed regardless of majoritarian tendencies or preferences. Right. And the Constitution is meant to be a counter-majoritarian check. And what we've lost absolutely, I think, in both the religion and the speech concept is the idea that it is the court's job not to imagine that you're the Christian baker. It's very easy for Anthony Kennedy to imagine himself the Christian baker. It is much harder to imagine himself, you know, as the Muslim uh, dissenter or and that's I think where we've we've we're seeing as we uh, Elena Kagan's language for this is weaponizing speech right, and right. her you know the idea that we're weaponizing the religious speech only of the majority in case after case after case uh, I think is is goes to this principle of we've forgotten that this is not a majoritarian bargain right, right. so I, I I think that's extremely well said thank you for for putting it that way I will say that what we've spoken about thus far has to do with uh, individual rights in the in the shared presumably neutral civic sphere as protected by the Bill of Rights in the Constitution however you cited some other cases which seem to me to raise other legal, cultural, constitutional issues. When you talked about the confirmation hearings, that to me seems to be more about the religious test 
provision in the Constitution, which which surely draws on the same spirit, the same Enlightenment spirit, but it seems to me radically different in its implications. Am I missing or am I... No, I think you're right. I think the religious... We never thought about the religious test provisions because for the longest time, nobody would say out loud the sentence, <laughs> Jews can only be, uh, uh, judges can only be Christian. It's now, I think, uh, 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 falling back into the discourse because we are really having, uh, again, people say out loud that which was probably assumed by a lot of folks, but nobody said it, which is, you know, only Christians using natural law. And by the way, Matt Whitaker, the new acting attorney general, doesn't even believe in natural, natural law. laws. He's, right, he's, right. He's, he's one to the right of Clarence Thomas on this. Uh, he believes in, and he says, biblical law. Uh, so I think that part of the reason we're talking about religious tests again is because it was very uncool to say those things out loud for, for the last few decades. Uh, but I also think it's important here to just pause and realize that the two religion clauses, even in the First Amendment, are obviously in tension, right? Because the state, you know, has to, there's meant to be a, a wall uh, between church and state, but the, the state also cannot interfere with free exercise. So even baked, that you're, you know, pulling out explicitly is implicitly baked into just the two religion clauses, which in, in almost every instance are somewhat intention. And so the zero summary, uh, that's baked in. The framers were well aware that that was a problem. So I want to move back to Jews, but mostly in the political sphere. I want to hear your opinions and hear what you have to say. Um, it, as you know, it is still the case that uh, American Jews still skew left. Our voting patterns are um, probably the most reliably and most uh, preponderantly democratic of any group in the country with the possible exception of African Americans. But it is also true that conservatism is growing in the Jewish community. And I have had more conversations with uh, Republicans and conservatives of conscience in the Jewish world than I ever had had in previous decades. In the past, when you would encounter a Jewish Republican, they would most um, conveniently fall in the category of those who call themselves fiscal conservatives but social liberals. Often, the social liberal part that they preserved, regardless of their fiscal conservatism, was the separation of church and state. Recently, meaning maybe the campaign season of 2016-ish, thereabouts, meaning quite recently, I have found more Jews who are willing or who are finding themselves, again, I, from a position of conscience, to be much more comfortable with the, what I would consider far-right positions on the separation of church and state, such as you and I have been discussing for the last few minutes. I want to ask you if you have seen this, and if you have, what do you make of it? So I, I think one thing I would want to press at is, it's, it, this, is this whole thing is so confounded by Israel, which is a whole other conversation, and it is really hard to separate out as Jews drift right, how much of that is just because the question of Israel has become so utterly binary. Um, and, and that is hard for me to think about because, you know, we're, we're, we're in the midst of the Jewish left is, is feeling deeply alienated from Israel. So I, I don't even know where to 
put that bucket of confounding variables into this conversation. Right. It, we, we agree that it belongs there. Yeah. Let's bracket it for the sake of the conversation, yeah. but, but by all means. And then I think that you are absolutely identifying a sense that, and by the way, this goes back to, you know, there's Supreme Court litigation around Curious Yoel, you know, like the, right. the, the famous, uh, 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 Curious Yoel is the town yeah. in, is it Muncie? No, it's, it's in, a, think, a Monroe. Yeah. Monroe, New York, I think. Yeah, it's in New York. Which is uh, overwhelmingly populated by uh, Satmar Hasidim. I think they're Satmars. Satmar Hasidim, where they um, have been able to take control of uh, of municipal um, and and school district um, bodies by virtue of the, the preponderance of their vote right. and uh, have tested vigorously the boundary between uh, church and state. Right. And I, and that's not a new case. I mean, this right. is, this is landmark, uh, uh, religious, uh, uh, doctrine. And so I think there is a feeling that it has long been the case in, in very orthodox Jewish circles that if we can grab the lever of power and get all the stuff that accrues to people who have the levers of power, that's awesome. That's way better than religious neutrality. And so I don't want to suggest this is, you know, within yeah. the last two years, but I think you are absolutely right that if you are mystified by supporters of even Donald Trump, who don't care that much about abortion, you know, this is halachically not as nearly as problematic as, Correct. you know, who don't care nearly as much about things like, you know, affirmative action. The, 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 the I suppose, I, I suspect Obergefell, the gay marriage case, is a, a triggering mechanism, although I don't know. But if you look at the reasons that a lot of non-Jewish conservatives hold their nose, you know, evangelicals and vote for Donald Trump. And it's the court. We know that all of the studies show that the court is, you know, they're, they're trying to block Merrick Garland. They want Neil Gorsuch. They get that. There's not a lot of space in that conversation for Jewish values. It doesn't feel as though abortion and gay marriage uh, and guns, which are the, right. the, the levers, are the things that are getting uh, Jews, Jews excited. Yeah, you know, yeah. I need more Second Amendment rights. I want a semi-automatic weapon. So I think it is a very, very confusing question. What then is the sort of Jewish legal win uh, in controlling uh, the federal bench and I think it does go to this idea that if we're going to open the spigot and have government funding sectarian religion, then maybe that could redound to our benefit in ways that, you know, we haven't thought about. And, you know, the, 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 some of the cases that are bubbling up now that will have to do with whittling away at the wall between church and state are coming uh, from Jewish groups who are saying, you know, if the Lutherans, like one in the case involving the you know, the, the rubber tires in the playground uh, two years ago, then maybe all, all kinds of uh, uh, secular rules that deny us benefits uh, should go away. So I suspect that's a part of it. It's certainly not the hot button, you know, issues that, that evangelicals vote around. Uh, but I guess I think that maybe in a deeper way there is this valence of anxiety about 
the liberals have gone too far. Mm-hmm. And it's, I agree. it's the bathroom bill. I agree. And it's, you know, I think that it's not an affirmative, you know, we hate the idea of gay marriage. But I think it's a feeling that Obama represented. Again, you have to bracket Israel, which is hard. But Fair that enough. Obama represented the triumph of some form of hyper-permissive, liberal, sort of flagrant violation of all norms and all rules that Almost makes... nihilism. Yeah, that makes, that makes uh, uh, conservative Jews... Not conservative. Makes Jewish conservatives very anxious. I, I think you've identified the fissure. I, I, I can't say I've poked at it enough to know... Mm. What animates it? I certainly think these last midterms we saw, you know, seventy high seventies of Jews um, uh, voting against Trumpism. But I do think that, to the extent that it's not tethered to abortion, right, right, right. And and I, I have another theory, which is hit that, me. Um, and I will, having asked you to bracket Israel, I'm now going to bring Israel into it only slightly, though. Um, I think that what happened was uh, beginning with Reagan, um, at least more or less. Um, when uh, a new generation of evangelical Christians um, developed a philo-Semitic discourse, both vis-a-vis Israel, but also as an expression of their Christian self-understanding, a segment of the Jewish population, and I say segment advisedly because it was only a segment, I don't know how big, bought it, that they said, wow, these Christians who are so different from us and whose, whose ideology seems to be so on the surface inimical to ours are now reversing course 180 degrees and they quote unquote like us Um, here's what I think is happening I think that what the Jews who bought that discourse bought was an ideological realignment when in fact what it really was was a sociological realignment and now the sociology is shifting and uh, Christianity's uh, love affair with Judaism, evangelical, I'll, I'll say evangelical Christianity, at the risk of oversimplification, um, that's shifting. Uh, a, a new generation of evangelicals is not going to be as knee-jerk uh, supportive of Israel. Uh, they, they, they may be liberal and open-minded to fellow Jewish citizens. I mean, who knows where it's going to go? But um, I think there was a mistaken interpretation um, and it may end up neutral or no worse for wear when it shifts again in terms of net positivity versus net negativity, but I don't think it's going to look the same at all. That's so interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking the materialization of that proposition is Mike Pence's yes. Christian rabbi, it, right? It, exactly. Because that is a moment at exactly. which I'd been trying to understand what broke in that moment, and I think you're so correct that when Jews universally said, whatever this is, this is <laughs> right, not, not what <laughs> we are. And the pushback, you know, the, the sense right. that, wait, what? You know, we thought we were right. perfectly aligned and that the only thing better than, you know, a, a Zionist uh, Jewish rabbi would be a Christian Zionist Jewish, Jewish rabbi. rabbi who believes right. in Christ. And I think that that, I, I've been trying to turn over and over in my head what that moment represented. And I think it's exactly what you're describing, is that there was this notion that, you know, Ted Cruz loves us qua us. Right. But Ted Cruz would love us with a side of... To be more like him. Him. Absolutely. I could, And that's why there was pushback after the fact. 
That to me is tremendous. In other words, a political. I mean, Pence is a politically set. He's an operator, right? I mean, he knows the score. He's not, and we know his ideology is 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 marked. But he's also he's not Donald Trump. He's not an amateur. It, and so when the Jewish population, about whom merely electorally speaking, he has to at least pay attention to, gives this coherent wall of objection, rather than say, wow, I misread that, or even, even back out as gracefully as he's like, no, actually, more so. The, the, the disconnect, the, the, the ideological um, fissure, to use your word, is... Um, is remarkable. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't identified it until you said it, but I think that that you know both sides in this in this dance, both the evangelicals and the Jews, had agreed to elide that problem. That's right. That's right. And that's suddenly right. we were like, oh, we're that's not right. aligning this very well because we don't agree to this. And I think that that so much of what when I write, you know. My, my hair on fire pieces week after week after week about text and truth and law. So much of it is about things we agreed to elide That's right. that have become explicit, and now we have to figure it out. I couldn't agree more, and it's not merely an elision. With respect to Christian ideology, it's a deferral rather than an right. elision because right. they're deferring the conflict to the end of days, theologically speaking. Um, and, but the def- a deferral can work because when you defer something until a later date, between now and that later date, you can get a lot done. Right. And it's understandable, but it does have a price to be paid. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because if you think about it, all the interesting stuff in this moment is happening where we all just agreed that we would never have to have this conversation. <laughs> and it's really like, in, 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 in one iteration after another, the having of this conversation is what's cracking us apart. That's right. So, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And that's why tone is so central. I mean, yeah. Because it's the conversation that you're talking about. And then when it's in, uh, colored with this complicated tone, um, it, it, it highlights the fact that the conversation itself is, uh, we don't know how to handle it. Well, and I would circle back to this is exactly my anxiety around judicial confirmations, is that we have just agreed as a nation that it is improper to question somebody's uh, uh, religion, or their level of religious zeal. The dis- You know, we haven't since Justice Brennan, I think, had overt, explicit conversations about how can you be X and still be a neutral justice. The only person brave enough to wade into that was Antonin Scalia, always pulling back a bloody stump when he tried. (laughs) And now here we are. It's 2018. We're now getting people who are coming, you know, before the Senate Judiciary Committee with really extreme religious views. They are saying them out loud. And we have no discourse for this. We have no language. Right. We have no, no civil frame to ask the questions you opened with. And instead of having, you know, agreeing that we better figure this out, we have these explosions. Well, here's to um, better solutions than explosions. Yeah. And here's to my warm, warm thanks for the absolutely fascinating and enjoyable conversation. Thank you for taking the time and sharing your wisdom. Thank you very much for having me. I feel like I, I, I learned and grew. <laughs> that's, 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 not, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. We, we don't want too much of it. But we'll... <laughs> Such a pleasure. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, 
collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.